0: This is our third week of John chapter 6. I'm not even sure this is enough. The chapter starts out with 14 verses on Jesus feeding 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. Now, every other gospel writer includes this story. It's the only miracle of Jesus in all four gospels. That means it's really important. But what we really want to hone in on and look at are the next 57 verses where only John gives us a sermon Jesus preaches in Capernaum that explains why he fed the 5,000. And and there's a lot going on here, guys. Uh, Jesus comes to this synagogue, he preaches this sermon, and it's the first time he will use this phrase, I am, right? Seven times in John, he says, I am, and in this one, he says, I am the bread of life. I have come down from heaven, whoever eats of my body will live forever, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And these people are astonished. It doesn't say it here, but I know they're thinking two things. Number one, they're astonished because he's making himself one with God. By saying, I am, he's tying himself back to Exodus, where Moses said to God in the burning bush, God, what is your name? What do I tell the people your name is? And he says, tell them I am that I am. So that's number one. The second thing is there's no doubt in my mind they're thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 8 because they bring up their fathers who were in the wilderness and who ate of the manna. In Deuteronomy, we have Moses giving the law Not to the people that came out of Egypt. This is the second generation. I don't know if you remember this or if you've ever read it. The generation that came out of Egypt all died in the wilderness. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, says they died of unbelief, even though they saw all the miracles, all the provision of God. And so now Moses, the next generation, he's imploring the people to remember God's faithfulness, to remember God's covenant. He's bringing you into a land flowing with milk and honey. He's going to drive your enemies out. God is a good God. And he gives them this exhortation. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart. What are your motives? Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so he humbled you allowed you to hunger, and he fed you with manna that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know. And this is the lesson of the Christian life now for you and me. It's for all of us. It's a lifelong process. That you might know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, of course, we know that verse because when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan says, you're the son of God, you have the power, turn these stones into bread. You shouldn't be hungry, you're a king's kid, you're the son of God. And the grammar is, since you're the son of God, why don't you just do it? And what was Jesus' reply? Deuteronomy 8, man doesn't live by bread alone. Man needs bread, we need physical food. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Here in verse 27, chapter 6, he tells these people, don't labor for the food that perishes, but labor for the food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God has set His seal on him. And you and I live in a culture where every day through advertisement and now the cell phone and however you get your news or information, we are bombarded that all of life is about the physical. All of life is about physical bread, physical comfort, You know, Jesus said our prayer is, Lord, give us our daily bread. In another place, Jesus said if we have a roof over our head and food on our table, that should be enough. But you and I live in a culture where enough is never enough. And it's all about physical appetite. You know, nobody talks about the spiritual. Is it any wonder we have more anxiety than any other generation, more suicides than any other generation? You know, we're going backwards in mental illness and things like that. We're not going forward forward because there's a spiritual dimension to who we are. There's a movie called The Book of Eli. Many of you have probably seen it, Denzel Washington. And it's one of those dystopian movies about there's been nuclear war or whatever, and uh, basically everybody that's still on the earth is young. There's a few older people like Denzel. And this girl comes up to him one day, and she goes, tell us what it was like. Tell us what the world was like before this atrocity happened. And he says to her, people had more than they needed. That's our culture. We have more physical things than we need. We have bigger buffets, bigger homes, bigger everything. Smart things, people, things that talk to us, I mean, there's, there's no end now. And Jesus said, man doesn't live by the physical. He's spirit, soul, and body. There's a dimension that must be looked at. Now, we're gonna get into all this, but I must confess, and I'm gonna say this just for you, those of you who immersed yourself in chapter six, I've taught John here at Calvary at least four times, outside of other times I've taught it or read it or studied it. And I'm amazed how much I still struggle with this chapter, how much I still struggle with Jesus. You ever notice Jesus says things that are hard to understand? Now, if you're afraid to raise your hand and say, he says things that are hard to understand, he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And guess what it says? The people say, that's a hard thing to understand. (laughs) It really is. And then it seems like he's all over the place. Like he says here, on the bread of life, whoever comes to me will have everlasting life. But then in verse 37, he says, but no man comes to me unless the Father draws me. Like, which one is it, right? Um, unless you eat my blood, drink my blood and eat my body, you have no place in me. Um, all that the Father has given to me, I won't lose any. But in John 65, it says, most of the disciples left. And then he says to the disciples, are you guys leaving too? And they said, no, 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 we're, you're the only one who has the words of eternal life. And he says, yeah, but one of you is a devil. Like what, like, what is he doing? And I've come to the conclusion, this is the beautiful thing about Jesus. Spurgeon said it, and I agree. Spurgeon said that if we could understand God, he would no longer be God. Does that make sense? He said, for it is part of the nature of God That he should be infinitely greater than any created mind. Now listen, God's given us enough, right? We see through a glass dimly. He's given us enough revelation. We understand salvation and baptism and God's holiness. but, But there are some things about Jesus that will always confuse us because he was God. And he will always be God. And the beautiful thing about the Bible is the greatest minds like Luther and Augustine, and if you've ever read Confessions or Calvin's Institutes, like, these guys were brilliant. There's only been a few of these people. Today we have John Lennox and some others. The most brilliant minds can study the Bible, and yet the simplest child can get it. And that proves to me it's the Word of God. So sometimes his ways will be above our ways. If you're reading chapter 6 and you can't figure it out, don't worry about it. If somebody's tried to teach you a doctrine where they put everything together in a nice little neat bow on it, don't believe it. There's always a tension we're going to have to live in. But I want to give you final thoughts on chapter 6, and they all revolve around this word discipleship. Now, when we talk about discipleship, we think it's a religious term, right? Because Jesus had 12 disciples, and Said, so "Go into all the world and make disciples." So We always think this is a religious term. It's actually a Greek word that means learner, follower, an apprentice. Uh, I'll give you an example. It's Sunday, right? So the NFL is playing today. So anybody who knows anything about the NFL? You have these coaches, Bill Belichick, Andy Reid, right? And they have what's called coaching trees. So guys have come from their system, believe in their system, and have come out of that system, and they are now disciples of those coaches. Sometimes in the NFL, they'll use that term. Musicians all learned under great masters. So did educators and artists. And, and, and the idea that's set up is everybody learn from somebody else. Now, I sit back and chuckle because there's always someone who thinks they're a trendsetter. You ever see these people? Like they dress real cool and they think they're setting a trend. And you just stand back and you say, oh my. Like, can, can you imagine somebody, one, if I told my daughters, um, before Uggs were popular, right? Uggs, which to me stands for ugly. I, I, I have no idea why they've ever sold. I guess they're comfortable, right? But if I told my daughters two years before anybody had Uggs, guys, this is what you're going to wear to school, they would have shot me, right? Especially if it was purple. Like one year my daughter had to have purple Uggs. Uh, converse, converse. When we went to the store, we had two choices. We actually have four. Converse, white high tops or low tops or black high tops or low, that was your choice, right? There's a little bit of Calvinism, election free will in there, right? Your choice is laid up for you. It's probably a bad illustration. Um, I look at NBA guys today. They got the black Coke bottle glasses. Kids got beat up for wearing those when I was a kid. Influencers abound. Everybody's a disciple of somebody. Nobody's a trendsetter. And those of you who are like in hip hop culture and think you're all cool and you're dressing stylish, you're going to be like the guys in the 80s. You're going to go back and look at your pictures. Do you know what the guys in the 80s do? They look back, they're wearing leisure suits and they have permed hair. And they think, what was I thinking? You're going to do the same thing when you're 60. And it's the same thing with lifestyle. It's the same thing with lifestyle. Uh, when we were young, if you smoked dope or drank or ran around with girls, you did it because there was somebody on the block that introduced you and somebody else and you thought it was the cool thing. So everybody's a disciple of somebody. Christians have switched masters. No longer are we discipled by the culture. We are now discipled by the true master, by Jesus Christ. Every Christian is a disciple and every disciple is a Christian. You can't have it any other way. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple, if you're a disciple, you're a Christian. And and Jesus is setting that whole thing up here in in a profound way in these 57 verses. And and again, I marvel at Jesus. I really do. Like, you know, among all the great religious teachers, he does things none none of them would do. The first thing is he's not impressed with crowds. He's at the height of his ministry, Maybe 20,000 people. It says 5,000 men, but you had women and children. There could have been 20,000 people there. And, you know, no pun intended, they're eating out of his hand, right? He just changed uh, the loaves and the fishes, and they're following him. The height of his ministry, you know what he says to them? They come to the synagogue. He said, he said, most assuredly, you did not seek me because of the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You guys aren't in this the right motive. You know, this is like bread and circuses. This is like Rome. This is like entitlement. Give the people what they want and they'll vote for you. Come on, this is human nature. Now, I was never politically correct. I am uh, probably more politically correct than I ever was. I've been coached that way a little bit. So I don't say things like Jesus just said here. Now, he gets away with it because he's God. And he can see into the hearts of people. Like, I'm more like, you never beat the sheep, you lead the sheep. Well, he's the shepherd. And he says, guys, this is grace and truth. You're in it for the signs. You're in it because you got something out of it. And, and the caution here is against wrong motive. The, the caution is that he knows people are coming for all the wrong reasons, and by the way, people still come to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And Some of it is our fault, some of it's our church's fault. I know it's my fault. If I meet a business guy, I say, oh, well, there's a lot of business principles in the Bible, I try and build like a bridge. And then I give them all the good news, God will bless your business, and God is good. And it's almost like I tell them all the good news but never tell them the bad news, right? That without Jesus, you're going to die in your sins. The other thing is, church, if you look at what we do, we take it for granted. Most people don't have this. Most people don't gather like this. Most people don't sing. They don't sit in a cafe with other people. They don't go to small groups. People look at what we have and sometimes they latch on because this doesn't exist anywhere. And you can exist in some churches and really never hear what true discipleship is and what following Jesus really means. So very quickly, and then this will lead in the communion, I just want to walk you through five aspects of true discipleship. Number one, true discipleship always begins with what I call a grand invitation. And Jesus told a parable that a man went out and gave invitations to a wedding and invited people to come in. Uh, a lot of people threw the, you know, the invitation on the ground. He said, now go on the highways and byways. Compel them to come in. You and I have been invited to the greatest banquet of all time. You and I have been invited by grace into this life with Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus says it very eloquently here. I have come down from heaven, verse 38, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Now, if you have like a reform background, this is your day, okay? Uh, at John 3 16, when Jesus said, Who, Whosoever may come, that was the other folks' day. But this is your day. If you believe in election and predestination, I do. This is your day. Because the Bible says you were chosen. No man comes to Christ, unless the Father draws him. Jesus says it again in John 15, 16. He said, you did not choose me, but I choose you. chose you. So there was a day in all of our lives where our eyes were open. Scales fell from our eyes. We repented, accepted Christ. He came in by his spirit. It's a beautiful day. And listen, we're not going to talk about free will. And we're not going to talk about predestination. They're both true. And we're going to bask in the light that we are chosen. But let me say this. If we're really saved by grace, and it's the work of God, not not anything we can boast about. If it's really his gift, then we could have no part in that. Think about it. Think about your salvation. Think about how you came to Christ. Uh, Do you really think you could have arranged that? You know, I, I look at my life and think, you know, I could never put all those pieces together. I wasn't seeking God. Romans says, in fact, no one seeks God. No, not one. We were all like sheep. We had all gone astray, and to think you could ever put together, you know, this tapestry of how God gave you the invitation is ridiculous. Uh, Still, my favorite, favorite salvation story, Monica and I were about two years into the faith, and there was a couple in our church. They were missionaries to India, young couple. We really liked them. We had them over for dinner, and the wife was a high-end fashion model in New York City, so I said, Colleen, tell me how you came to Christ. It must be an amazing story. She goes, Well, Bob, I was in Manhattan, 15 inches of snow, blinding snowstorm, and I saw a great light. And I thought, Ooh, like I'm two years into the faith. I thought, Was it angels? Um, was it an angel standing on a bill? Like she goes, No, it was the lights of a cab. It's a letdown. And uh, cab driver said, Man, nobody should be out in a night like this. I'll take you to your apartment for free takes her there, before she gets out of the car, he hands her a tract. And it wasn't any tract, it was a chick tract. Uh, Anybody remember Jack, Chick, those tracks. Now, you're not going to believe me when I tell you this. The tract was called, This Was Your Life. It's like one of these comic book tracts where the guy in the tract is seeing all the times and chances he had to accept Christ, and he never did, and he's at the great white throne of judgment. Well, Colleen goes up in her apartment, reads through this track, says the prayer, wakes up the next morning, like filled with joy, God had come into her life, and she noticed there was witchcraft paraphernalia all around the room. She never knew it, but her uh, roommate was a practicing witch. Crazy story. Now, fast forward 15 years later, I'm in Moscow, and uh, we're preaching to preachers and teachers there, and it's a three-day seminar, and it's over. And so we had one last day, and I had about eight pastors I was working with, and I really like this guy, Ely, and I said, Ely, tell me how you became a Christian. He said, well, Bob, when the Berlin Wall came down, Christians flooded here, I was a lawyer in St. Petersburg, I was walking through a park, and somebody handed me a tract. And uh, I read the tract, I said the prayer, became a Christian, now I'm a pastor. I said, Ely, what was that tract He said, this was your life. Now, I just told that story in the first service. Guy handed me the tract. Uh, The last time I taught John, I told this story. Two weeks later, the guy gave me the Russian version, and I put both in my office. How does God do that? Some of you, most of you, a friend told you about Jesus. Blessed are the feet of them that bring good news. Some of you watch television, or maybe you heard something on the radio. I've heard tons of those stories. But somewhere there was a grand invitation, and we came into the kingdom through no effort of our own. Which leads to the second mark of discipleship. When God enters your life, this is one of the characteristics that you have passed from death to life. There is unmitigated joy. Now, I got to let this out for a minute, because in church today, When people hear about joy and peace and rest and all these things, they say, look, you're not being authentic because a lot of people I know that are Christians don't have peace and joy and rest and all that. I'll get to that in a minute. Just stay with me. There is a vital optimism. There is is a joy unspeakable when Jesus comes in your life, and this is the only way I can explain it. So I played baseball and football all through grade school, and that's what I was going to play in high school but in my freshman year, the Sixers signed Julius Irving, Dr. J. And I became enamored with basketball, plus I was growing. So naturally, I went out for the freshman team and things were way different back then. No participation trophies, no orange slices at halftime, right? No, parent, no helicopter parents, right? I, I played in the Catholic League where 90 guys went out for basketball and you had one day and they cut everybody but 12. And you know how you knew you made the team? The next day, you went down to the gym and on the door, there were the name of 12 guys. There's no boo-hoo, no counselor, you couldn't tell your mom or dad, it was just it, right? So I go down, my name's not there. So then I played all year, played in summer leagues, go out my sophomore year, my name's not there. My junior year, 90 guys go out. I go down to that gym door, and there's my name. You ever have that experience? There's my name. I got to tell you, I mean, I felt like I was propelled out of a rocket ship. Bible says that your name's written in heaven. On days where there's tremendous sadness, when we go through the dark night of the soul when there really is limited joy, we need to remember these things. Our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We were chosen. How could it be anything but joy? Jesus told two little parables about this in Matthew 13. He said, he said, the kingdom of God is like a man who went and he found a treasure. And when he found that treasure, he hid it, right? He didn't want anybody else to get it. And he ran, sold everything he had, and bought the entire field. Or the kingdom of God is like a businessman who's looking for a pearl of great price, and when he finds the pearl, sells everything he has and buys that pearl. Why? Why? Because nothing, nothing outside of that feel and that pearl means anything to him. It pales in comparison with the joy that he has experienced. I have yet to hear a testimony where somebody stood up and said, yeah, I became a Christian, but man, what a drag. Like, gosh, I could have been a Wall Street executive. I could have had a million dollars. Uh, yeah, I accepted Christ, but man, you know, it was probably a bad decision." I have yet to hear that testimony. Generally, the testimony is one of great joy, and think about falling in love. We'd all do the same thing, right? Think about being a parent. You know, you think you're gonna do one thing with a child until it actually comes out and you hold it, and then you'll do anything for that child. And, you know, parenting and children, you know, children used to be an asset when we were a farming community, right? They would make you thousands of dollars. Today, they're a liability, right? It costs you thousands to raise them, right? And you dug and, you know, the young people are going to find out it cost you hundreds of thousands to raise them. <laughs> but we do it joyfully. We do it all, I know I do it all over again. Jesus says hard things. He who follows me must hate father, mother, brother. You know, you can't be my disciple. Our text today unless you eat my body, drink my blood, you can't be my disciple. What Jesus presents to us is the upside down kingdom where you. Die first, then live. Where a seed goes in the ground and dies, then grows and lives. What Jesus is saying isn't hard, you just gotta look at it a different way. He's saying, as long as there's something else in life that has more value, you probably really shouldn't follow me. And, and one of the problems we have is we treat Jesus like a timeshare. We sit somebody down for a cup of coffee, we share the gospel, and we say, okay, Are you going to accept? You're going to accept? You're going to accept? You can't leave here unless you accept. It's one of the problems I have with altar calls. They're necessary at times. Jesus said, this is how discipleship works. No man going to fight an army with 20,000, having only 10,000, would ever go fight that battle. No man building a city would not make sure he has the right resources. So is it with everybody that follows me. I talked about down days. Struggles, dark night of the soul, things we're all going to go through. They're common. It doesn't mean our joy's not there. The prophets all experienced this, right? Malachi said, Where's the God of justice? Where's God? Things are falling apart at the seams. Where's God in the midst of all this? Asaph, who wrote a series of Psalms, who was in full time ministry, said, My foot almost slipped. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and this is a guy who was in the temple six days a week. My foot almost slipped. He said, but when I came in the house of God, everything made sense, and I considered the end of the wicked." Job, when he went through his calamity, he said, "You know, naked I came into this world, uh, naked I shall leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord." The Bible says he sinned not with his lips. I'll bet you he thought about it in his mind. And we've all been there. We've all gone through these difficult times. One of my favorite books is The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom. During the concentration camps in Germany, her family hid Jews. And when they were found out by the Nazis, they were taken to concentration camps. Her father died in a concentration camp. It was only she and her sister that were left. And her sister was starting to lose her faith. Her sister was actually sick and, of course, it's more eloquent in the book, but one day, you know, she's ministering to her sister, and her sister's like, why would God ever do this to us? And, and, and finally, Corey says to her sister, she says, when God wrote the story of our life, and they were in Ravensbrook prison, he put as the title Ravensbrook. This was God's plan for us from the beginning, as hard as it is to imagine. And if you don't think that's true, we've already talked about election and predestination, Um, remember at the end of John's Gospel when Jesus makes lunch for the guys by the sea and uh, Peter, do you love me more than these? feed my sheep? He goes through that whole thing. And then he tells Peter, when you were young, you girded yourself and you would go wherever you want. There's coming a time when men are going to take you to a place you don't want to go. And we know that Peter was crucified upside down. Now, when Peter heard that, he said, "Uh, uh, all right, Lord, everybody wants to know your will. I don't know if I want to know that much. But you know what his answer was? What about him? Points to John. What about, (laughs) all right, I'll do it, but uh, what's John going to do? And Jesus said, look, if I want John to live until I return, I can do that too. I love the short book of Habakkuk. The public reading of Scripture, 18 minutes if you listen to it. Habakkuk was a prophet who struggled because God was using the Babylonians idol worshipers, to attack Israel. They had used the Assyrians who were ruthless to attack his people, Israel. And he writes this book about God. How could you let this happen? You know what God says? Habakkuk, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets that he who reads may run with it. And that wasn't a business idea, by the way. You know, it wasn't a mission statement that Habakkuk came up with. God said, no, I'm giving you the vision. And the vision is, I'm going to judge Babylon, and I'm going to exalt you, and the day you see it, you won't believe it, even though I've told you it. And Habakkuk ends with this hymn of faith that gives me holy goosebumps goosebumps every time I read it. It says, though the fig tree may not blossom. Now, it, it applies to us, but the fig tree is always Israel. By the way, the fig tree did not blossom. They were under Roman occupation in Jesus' time. For 1,800, 1,900 years, they were under occupation. Nor fruit beyond the vines. Mark Twain, when he visited Israel around 1890, wrote Innocence Abroad, said there were two things he couldn't find, a human being and a tree. Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, this was Israel all the way through 1948. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, yet there's no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will, here's our word, joy in the God of my salvation. Today, the deserts bloom. Israel leads in so many areas. And it's just a testimony of what God could do. And that's why we travel there. And it's a testimony we can do in our lives. Maybe you're in a place right now where the fig tree is not blossoming and there's no herd in the stalls, maybe everything's dried up, but there is still joy for true disciples. There's a grand invitation, it's marked by joy. I think disciples are marked because they're lifelong learners. One of my favorite scenes in the Bible is Caleb and Joshua, 80 years old, trying to take new ground. I go to conferences, I see older people, which by the way, aren't valued by younger people, but should be because we stand on their shoulders. And they're still, they're still tracking with God. They're still running hard with God. Dallas Willard said non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It's not the much discussed moral failures, financial abuses, or the amazing general similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only effects of what he calls the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. It is an accepted reality. The division of professing Christians into whom um, faith is a matter of whole life devotion to God and those who maintain a consumer or client relationship to the church has now been accepted as a reality for over 1,500 years. Ouch. Ouch. That's rough, but true. See, that's why crowds didn't marry under Jesus. They followed for all the wrong reasons. Now, we're not about separating wheat from tares or sheep from goat. But we are trying to do those things that will say, you know, what, what is moving us forward? You know, I talked last week about we need physical food. We need spiritual food. We need to listen in community. We need to study together. We need preaching and teaching. And then, remember the works of God? We need to do the works of God. One time Jesus was walking by and somebody said, blessed is the one who bore you and the breast that nursed you. Trying to elevate Mary to some status. And she was blessed among women. You know what Jesus' response was? He didn't say, oh yeah, you're right, Mary. He said, no, blessed is the one who hears my words and does them. That's what true discipleship really is. So we have a lot of meetings here at Calvary. And we'll sit around for an hour and say, okay, children's ministry is really important. We put a lot of money into it. What can we do? How do we grow it? How do we make kids disciples? Same thing in youth ministry. And sometimes I leave those meetings and I'm like, man, I know how to grow a children's ministry. Radical parents, true discipleship, parents who are true disciples, who are who are." turning certain things off on the TV and turning certain things on and leading people to Christ and opening up their homes. Uh, if we had true discipleships as parents, I think children's and youth ministry would go through the roof. The fourth mark of true discipleship is that true disciples should never go back. Uh, look at John 60, John 6, 6, 6. John 6, 66. John 6, you can do that whatever you want, by the way. <laughs> it says, in verse 65, Jesus said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted of him by the Father. And John 6, 66 says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus said to the twelve, You guys leaving? Now, if that was me, I'd say, look, I'll raise your salary. I'll give you more benefits. Please stay. I at least need 12. (laughs) Jesus is like, you guys leaving? Peter says, to whom shall we go? He didn't say, where are we going? He said, to whom shall we go? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I would have marched Peter up, given him a gold star. Jesus said, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you's a devil? What? <laughs> <laughs> to whom shall we go? Boy, I hope that's the way you feel, even when it's hard. Where are we going? You know, where and to whom are we going? The older you get, the more you realize this whole world is built on lies, smoke screens, corruption. Um, For those who have tasted of God's goodness, there's no going back. There's no turning back. The devil has this way of putting things in our rearview mirror that aren't true. Uh, He's the master at making us look back. The Bible says look back and remember God's faithfulness, telling Israel, remember all that God has done. He fed you with manna for 40 years. Instead, Israel sat around and said, oh, remember the pots of meat we had? Wait a second. Weren't you guys bricklayers who didn't get paid, by the way? Pots of meat, what are you talking about? But that's what he does in our lives. He, he comes up with this stuff that never really existed. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, No man who has put his hand to the plow who looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In Luke 17, this is about the last days. Jesus said that the last days would be like the days of Noah, where they were eating and drinking, giving in marriage, buying and selling. In other words, it was business as usual until the very day the flood came. No one was expecting judgment. Likewise, he said, the last days will be like Sodom and Gomorrah, where God rained down fire from heaven and destroyed Sodom, wiped them out. And then he says this, remember Lot's wife. Now, what in the world am I supposed to remember about her? She gets 15 verses in the entire Bible. Uh, some of them are by Jesus, remember Lot's wife. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her. And then, I'm kind of weird. I always wonder, what's it going to be like if we see these people in heaven? Hi, I'm Bob. What's your name? Oh, I'm Judy. I'm Sally. Oh, what area did you live in? Well, I was in Abraham's time. Really? That's a cool area. Like, what did you do? Well, I was Lot's wife. Ooh, that's like... It's going to be rough, right? <laughs> and we look at her, and we judge her, and we all know what happened, right? She looked back, turned into a pillar of salt. Now, God doesn't do that to everybody, right? If everybody that looked back turned into a pillar of salt, we wouldn't be here. And if everybody was like Ananias and Sapphira who held back, it's going to get quiet in this Presbyterian church, if everybody died who held back more than they should give, there would be no Calvary Chapel Delaware County. The tendency is to say she looked back and think, why in the world would she look back? Her husband's heart was vexed every day in that city, but he was there. He wouldn't, I mean, he eventually left, but he wanted to be there. And we tend to think it was a vile, it was like Las Vegas. It was vile, it was corrupt. We think it was all, you know, homosexuality and sodomy and all those things, and it was. But the Bible tells us that there were three sins of Sodom. They have plenty of food, idleness of time, and no regard for the poor. When any society has enough food to feed itself, it moves into idleness and no regard to the poor. Sodom, if you remember, Abraham, when he came in the land, said, it, Lot, you choose, and Lot took the better part. He took the lush part and gave Abraham the other. In fact, it said the part he took looked like the garden of God. It was New York City, Hawaii, New Zealand, uh, Monaco, all tied in one. It's what Jesus probably saw when Satan took him to the pinnacle of the temple and showed him the kingdoms of this world. He said, all of these are yours if you'll bow down to me. Jesus defeated him like we do with the word of God. Peter, do you love me more than you? really want to go back and fish, really want to go back to the old life, or do you want to see a boatload of people come to faith? Do you want to write 1 Peter and dictate your gospel to Mark and have great sermons preached through the ages and great artwork done? Do you really want to go back? We're gonna celebrate communion not because Jesus said, eat my body and drink my blood. I don't even think John 6 is a communion chapter. The only way it's a communion chapter me is four times here in John 6, Jesus says, and I'll raise him up on the last day, which is my final point. True disciples have one eye on eternity. Martin Luther said there's only two days that exist. This day is the only day we have. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of the Lord. I know what my mind's on. My mind's on what's God doing today? Luther said, we have this day, and then we have that day, the last day. I will raise him up on the last day, whatever you're going through. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You will be raised with him on the last day, and this is what I'll leave you with. When we get to Jesus' greatest miracle, his seventh, he raises Lazarus. Martha, his sister, comes and says, Lord, if you were here, my brother would have never died. And Jesus says, oh, don't worry about it. I'm going to raise him up on the last day. Now, I would never counsel anybody to say that. You know, it's like somebody's close relative dying, and you say, it was the Lord's will. Never say that. Do what Job's friends did in the beginning. Just sit there and don't say anything. But again, Jesus is God. He says, Martha, he's going to rise in the last day, which brought her no comfort. She's like, Lord, I know, I know. I know theologically he'll rise. He said, Martha, look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who comes to me, though he physically dies, will never die. I will raise him up on the last day. And then here's the phrase. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? He didn't ask her if Lazarus believed it. He didn't ask her if her parents believed it, her father believed it, Calvary Chapel believed it, your denomination believed it. This is where the rubber meets the road as we take communion. Do you believe it. Can you say like Peter, you are the son of God. You are the Christ. The Bible says with confession, the mouth says what's in our heart, what we believe. By the way, guys, this true discipleship is why there's denominations. Do You ever look around and say why there's so many denominations? The reason why there's denominations is because there's a people group that believes. And then it dries up, and then some people come out of that and say, let's start this, and that thrives, and then that dies. And, like, people are pulled out of people. So Martin Luther, right, has the Reformation, and then that dries up. And then Wesley comes out, and then out of that come the Anabapt, and we just keep going and going. Because true discipleships, true disciples, God is pouring new wine. And if anything makes this a communion chapter, it's what Paul said in Corinthians. Whenever we take the bread and the cup, we remember the Lord's death until He comes. And when He comes, the great invitation will be complete, and we will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those who ever come, chosen from the foundation of the world, and we will sit at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. So what we're doing now has been done for 2,000 years. It's prophetic. We are fulfilling prophecy.